Psalm 23, this is God's word, the beautiful and true. A psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. That in it you show us who you are, and you show us what you are about, and thus you show us who we are in you, and all the riches that are ours because of your love. So I pray, Lord, as we stop here and pause to attend to the riches of your word, and as you move by your Holy Spirit, that you would show us Jesus, that you would show us him, that we may trust in him all the more. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The older I get, the worse of a flyer I am. Now, I'm not a frequent flyer. I'm not going to be like in the private club or American Airlines or anything. So I haven't flown that much. But the older I get, the way worse of a flyer I become. First time I ever flew on a plane, I was 17. And I, you know, I thought I was invincible. I got on the plane. I was not nervous whatsoever. I was making jokes. I was making jokes about the plane crashing, which is a terrible thing to do as you're getting on a plane. And then the plane took off, and I had maybe the best nap I've ever had in my life. It was great. I remember being in the air and thinking, this is, this is amazing. This is awesome. But now, flash forward to now, when I have to fly, I get nervous. I start sweating. I get anxious. I'm on the plane. I'm trying to distract myself. We get in the air, and I'm looking out at the clouds, and rather than thinking, this is incredible, I'm thinking the whole time, like, I'm not supposed to be up here. This is wrong. I'm laughing in the face of God. I, this is wrong. I don't, that's not true. But how, did I, how can I explain the difference? It's 22 years between my first flight and, and now, and how did I go from being, you know, happy-go-lucky, taking a nap, to now I'm like trying to distract myself with a book, but I can't focus on it. Um, I think some of it's probably because as I've gotten older, I've realized how fragile life can be. Um, I don't feel as invincible as I did at 17 years old. I think some of it is probably, um, you know, my anxiety just gets worse with age. <laughs> so I'm just in general more anxious. Uh, but uh, whatever it is, I am, I am not a good flyer. I was talking about this the other day with my friend Chris, who's a pilot, um, and he was laughing as I'm telling him the story. And he wasn't laughing at me because of anxiety, but he was laughing because for him, flying a plane is as mundane as me flying a car. I asked him how many flights he's done, and he said, well, I don't know exactly, but probably over 6,000. And I was like, well, have you ever had any issues? And he's like, I've been through turbulence, but I've never come anywhere near crash. And then he starts quoting the stats, which I already knew, um, that flying is way safer, way, way safer than me driving a car down the street. So he's telling me all of this and all the training he's had and all the training he has to keep doing. And so the next time I fly, which is coming soon, when I get anxious, when I get sweaty, I can remember what Chris said 
I can remember those stats. I can remember all the flights he's had and never come close to crashing. I can remember the pilot of my plane has that same level of competence and training and experience. And alongside my anxiety, I can gain a confidence that doesn't rest in me, it rests in the pilot. I think I know, I think you probably know where I'm going with this. Psalm 23, what we just read, can be the same kind of thing. There's a reason why so many people have memorized the song over the millennium. It's because it can come to mind when we're going through those times when we feel out of control, when we feel like anxious and nauseous because we don't know what's coming next. Psalm 23 can be like my friend Chris's words to me because it invites us to find a confidence outside of ourselves. It invites us to pin our hopes on not our own strength and ability, but on our shepherd, on God. We can build our lives here. So that's what we're going to be talking about, how we can walk forward even in a world where we don't control everything with confidence. So we're going to talk about two different things this morning because in this song, you may have noticed, there's two different images going on. There's the Lord as shepherd, and then there's the Lord as host of a great feast. Lord is shepherd, Lord is host. And first, we'll talk about the Lord as shepherd. The psalm begins with David declaring at the very beginning that God is his shepherd. And then he tells us how God is his shepherd. But actually, you may have noticed, it doesn't say God is my shepherd. It says the Lord is my shepherd. And that's a slight difference that makes a big difference, actually. Here's what it is. Anytime you're reading through the Old Testament, and if you've got a Bible in front of you, you may notice that Lord, of all the words there, is in big capital letters. It'll be in slightly different print a lot of the time. When you see Lord in the Old Testament, what it is is a translation of the word Yahweh, the name for God. And I, we'll do a little bit of Old Testament background. We probably should have read Exodus 3 where God gives this name to Moses. But that's what it is, Yahweh. Is my shepherd. Not just generic God is my shepherd. Yahweh. And Yahweh's like God's personal name in a sense. It's like my name's Timothy. If you look at my driver's license, if, if somebody calls me on the phone and they say, Can I speak to Timothy? I know this is not somebody who knows me. Because my name's Timothy, but nobody calls me Timothy. My friends call or Timothy. My friends call me Tim. It's kind of what Yahweh was when. God gave that name to Moses. Like, you can call me God, but we're going to enter into this friendship, this intimacy. And what you and all my people are going to call me is Yahweh. And I'll unpack that a little bit more. It's actually a little bit deeper than that intimacy-wise. It's like, you all call me Tim. There's one person in this world who calls me Doc. That's what Declan calls me. When I hear the name Doc, I know it's not, it's not calling, calling. If you start calling me God, it's going to be strange, right? <laughs> but it's that name of intimacy is what's going on there. So if you flip back to Exodus 3, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, and they have been for hundreds of years. And they're crying out. God hears their cries, and he calls Moses. And he says, Moses, you're going to be my people's shepherd, essentially. You're going to be the person that marches into Egypt, looks uh, Pharaoh in the face and says, let my people go, and you're going to lead my people out of slavery. 
And Moses says, well, when I walk in here, who do I say sent me? Who do I say sent me to do this? Because there were tons of gods in Egypt. If he walked in and said, God sent me, there's you know three dozen names that could be put there. Who sent me? And God says, when you get into Egypt, you tell the people that Yahweh sent me. Yahweh. It meant, I am who I am, which is a strange name, admitted. I am who I am. But this is what that name meant. It meant at least three things. The first one is this. God cannot be defined outside of himself. He defines who he is. So God could have said, Moses, I'm like a rock. Moses, I'm like this thing. I'm like a father. And God is like those things. He speaks about that in Scripture. That he's given Moses his, in a sense, proper, intimate name. I am who I am. I define who I am. It also means, number two, I am who I am. It means that God in his character does not change. God is always the same. He was telling Moses, I'm always the same. And it also means, number three, that his purposes never change. His purposes for his people never change. So, I am who I am. And the remarkable thing, again, back in Exodus 3, is as soon as God gives this name to Moses, I am who I am, I define who I am, nobody else can, my purposes never change, I never change, he then, in a sense, expands on his name, because he invites Moses to call him Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's almost like God is saying, my name is I am who I am. But I am expanding in grace to make my name longer. I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am your God, the God of your fathers. So they would not just call him this name, Yahweh. They would say, that's Yahweh, my God, my source of confidence, my Lord. Or, to say it as David says it here, Yahweh is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. The image invokes the, the idea of an ancient shepherd. In, in the ancient world, shepherds lived among their sheep. They quite literally did nothing else. They didn't have books with them. <laughs> they didn't have iPhones and games to play. They literally lived among the sheep, and their entire life was dedicated to feeding these sheep, making sure these sheep did not get attacked. Their entire thing was protecting this flock. And that's something David would have been well acquainted with. Before he was ever a king, before he ever rose to the heights to be this great figure in Old Testament history, David was a shepherd. David was a shepherd himself. And so uh, David says here, Yahweh is my shepherd. And because of that, he says, confidently, I lack nothing. I lack nothing. Pardon me for a second, that's a ridiculous statement. Yahweh is my shepherd, and I lack nothing. Nothing. It's curious because as David, David keeps going in the song, he starts to talk about lots of situations where he, he himself lacks. Yahweh's my shepherd and I lack nothing. Well, the Lord, Yahweh, makes me lie down in green pastures. Why? Because he needs to lay down. He lacks the energy to keep going. He needs to lay down. He needs to eat. He leaves me beside quiet or still waters. Why? Because he's thirsty. He needs, he needs nourishment. He refreshes my soul. Why? Because his soul needs refreshing. 
He guides me down right paths for his namesake because I don't have the ability to know where those paths are. He walks with me through the darkest dark, the valley of the shadow of death. David can say here this frankly ridiculous statement that I lack nothing, not because he's never experienced lack, not because he doesn't have weaknesses. He does. He has deep and profound weaknesses like we all do. But he can say this that he lacks nothing because he's never, we never, experience a lack that God's grace is not sufficient to fill. There is no weakness in us that is stronger than God's grace and his ability to fill it. We ourselves, in a sense, are empty vessels that keep getting filled up over and over again, not because we have some kind of source or fountain within us, but because we are continuously poured into by God's grace. Or to borrow a phrase from later in the psalm, we are cups that overflow. Because God's grace continually pours upon us. Now God as our shepherd, Yahweh as our shepherd, it, it, it's going to mean this abundance that we lack nothing. Uh, it'll look different in different seasons of life, I think. Because sometimes we need to eat. Sometimes we need to lie down in green pastures, metaphorically. We need to stop. We need to rest. Sometimes we are parched and we need to lie down. We need to drink. We need to drink in the goodness of the gospel. Sometimes we are walking down a dark path and we cannot see the way forward. And we need something, someone, to lead the way. And sometimes we are like sheep. I don't know if you know anything about sheep, but the whole reason a shepherd has to lead them to quiet waters is because a sheep will go to get a drink of water in a rushing river, fall right in and drown. Needs a shepherd to lead them to quiet waters. We're the same way. A lot of times we go for sustenance. We go for nourishment in fountains in rivers that are rushing by. And if we dip our head in, it's going to grab us and drown us. We need a shepherd that can lead us to the right things that will not poison us or sweep us downstream, but the quiet waters that will restore our soul. But no matter what it's going to look like in the different seasons, us laying down, us being led down this path, in all of it, Yahweh is our shepherd. It's like the gym. I'm not speaking from experience here, but at the gym, as I theoretically understand it, on different days, you have different focuses. You know, there's leg day. But you don't do legs every day. If you do legs every day, you're going to have swollen thighs, and the rest of you is going to look out of balance, right? Some days, I don't know. I'm just saying theoretically. Um, some days you do cardio. But you don't do cardio necessarily every day. Some days you're working on this muscle or that muscle. You focus on different areas on, at different times. Well, for us, there's going to be some seasons where God is growing us. He's leading us as a shepherd in growing our affections for him. And so there will be seasons in life when we feel like we're having powerful emotional experiences. And maybe emotionally we feel so intimate with God. And in those seasons, we might not be learning a lot. We might not have a bunch of books in front of us. And it might not even feel like we're doing a lot. We might not be volunteering for lots of things, but that's a season where God is growing us specifically in our affections for Him. 
There's going to be some seasons where it feels like we're learning lots of things, where we're just soaking in uh, and, and gaining all this knowledge, not just knowledge about God, but knowledge of Him as our God. But maybe in those seasons where you're learning lots of things, maybe your passions, your affections for Him aren't burning as hot. That's okay. God may be growing us in that season, in our knowledge of Him, to not run on the fuel of our emotions. There may be seasons where God is leading us to more and more action and service. He, 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 he's growing us in, in our, our will for Him, our desire to do. And in those seasons, we may not feel like we're learning lots of things. We may not feel like we have the same passion we did when we first became a Christian. But that, again, is okay. God is our shepherd in all of it. He may be leading us in that season to learn to do the right thing even when we don't feel it. We don't understand. You may be in one of those seasons right now. Right now, your affections for God may be running hot. And every time you even hear the word gospel, tears start to well up. I've been through those. Those are great. I love those seasons. And if you're there, that's okay. That's good. That's good. God's growing you in that. You may be growing in your knowledge of Him. You may be growing in your actions, your will, your doing for Him. But in all of it, it is not you making it happen. It is your shepherd leading you through all these different seasons. God leading you so that you will love and know and live for Him in all of who you are. And in all of this, we can say like David, that otherwise ridiculous statement... I lack nothing. Not because we don't have weaknesses. Not because we don't sometimes face things where we do lack. But because there is not a lack or a weakness where God's grace is not sufficient to cover it. In John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. We read that in our assurance of pardon in one verse. He speaks about, he calls out to his sheep and they know his voice. He cares for his sheep. He even lays down his life for his sheep. When Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, he is saying that this, uh, the words of Psalm 23, which you know so very well, I, Jesus, am the ultimate uh, manifestation, proof of that. We lack nothing because of the riches of Jesus. We are deeply mired in our sin and stuck, and he gives us forgiveness. We desperately need righteousness and vindication to know that we are seen. And God gives us that in Christ. We need to know that we are not orphans, that we belong to someone who cares for us, that we are not alone. And Jesus gives us that. He adopts us into the family of God. We need to know that I can change, that I can grow, I can be made new. Jesus gives us that. We need to know that what my life is leading to is not futility, but a place. A place where I am made whole. And God gives us that in Christ and his making of all things in the new heavens and earth. What I'm saying is that the way that God proves to us that he is our shepherd, that we lack nothing, is Jesus. And he gives us all that we need. That brings me to my second uh, kind of breakdown here because the other image at work in Psalm 23 is God as host. It's him uh, throwing this humongous feast. 
We see that in the final two verses. In verse 5 it speaks that God prepares a table for David in the middle of his enemies. And what David's saying there is God satisfies him and nourishes him, not just in a future time when all things are made new, but David is sustained and nourished and provided for even in the here and now. Speaks of it as a feast, that God is setting a feast for his weary people in the middle of their travels, a meal that satisfies and refreshes them, but costs them nothing. A meal provided to them where they feast with abundance at his expense. There's a Danish uh, short story called Babette's Feast that illustrates this well. I don't know if you've ever read it. There's actually a really good movie um, about it, but it's called Babette's Feast. It's set in this drab fishing village where there's only a handful of people there, maybe a few dozen, um, and there's one church in town. And the pastor had died long ago. The people are deep in bitterness and resentment. They've lived together. They've wronged each other. They're at odds with each other. And the only thing that keeps this village from imploding, essentially, and this church from imploding, are the two uh, uh, daughters of the deceased pastor. They do everything for the aging congregation. Now one day a knock comes at the door, and it's a woman. Her name's Babette, and she is a refugee from the French Civil War. She says, I have nothing with me. I had to flee for my life, but I can cook. And so they agree to take her in, and she becomes essentially their servant of the town. She lives there 12 years. Caring for people, cooking for people. And after 12 long years, Babette makes a discovery that she has won a lottery. She wins this incredible amount of money. And the sisters are sure, well, now she's got cash. <laughs> she's not going to stay here any longer. She's going to go back. The, the war's over in, in, in France. She's going to go back. But she tells them what she wants to do before any discussion about that. She wants to throw a feast, a feast for these people. In this small village. And so they agree for it, agree to it. And as supplies begin to arrive from this dinner from very far off places, the very holy and respectable and righteous, self-righteous people that at church, they start to get worried. Because they don't want to be seen as folks that indulge in a feast, who, who enjoy this rich food and enjoy this wine. And so they have a meeting. They're concerned. They have a meeting. And they agree in this meeting that they're going to eat Babette's feast. No matter what's put in front of them, they're going to eat it, but they're not going to make a comment about it. They're not going to say they love it. They'll, they'll eat it, but they won't, don't want to be seen as indulging. They, won't, they don't want Babette to think that they actually enjoy this. So they're going to eat it, but they're going to keep a straight face. Day of the feast arrives, and this unexpected guest is there. It's the son of two of the villagers. Um, he had left long before, and he had gone off on this illustrious military career, and now he's like General of the Palace Guard in Paris. But he's there unexpectedly. And so he's going to join the feast. The feast starts, and they start bringing out course after course, and all the church people and the respectability, they're very quiet. They just eat. They don't say anything. But the general, he's raving about every dish that comes out. This is the best meal I've ever had. I can't believe this. And they just keep, and he, he's, he's flabbergasted at how nobody else is saying anything. And then the final main course comes out. And he digs in and he says, this is the best thing I've ever had. 
but I've had this before. I've eaten at all the finest restaurants in Europe, but I had this dish before many, many years ago at a famous restaurant in Paris. And it is so, so good. And he is moved, unable to control himself. He stands up and he makes a speech. And in the middle of that speech, he says this, grace, because he can't understand how these people are not feasting with joy that this woman has provided a, an incredible experience of eating and drinking to them. He says this, grace demands nothing from us that, but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. Grace demands nothing from us, but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. When those words, it's like the spell of their bitterness and their resentment is broken. They begin to talk to each other, really talk to each other for the first time in years. They remember good times. They apologize to each other. They're reconciled. It's almost like the grace that they desperately needed snuck in in this feast. And this little church is made new by this profound generosity. And in the best moment, this one woman burps and the man sitting beside her says, Hallelujah! The table prepared in the middle of enemies has turned those enemies into friends. The feast ends and this small group of elderly people, unsteady on their feet, they walk hand in hand. They're holding each other up on the slippery ice on the ground. And the sisters go to Babette, who's in the kitchen, who didn't actually see any of this happen. Pots and pans are caught up, and she is exhausted. And the sisters are unsure how to express their gratitude when Babette reveals who she is. Before she had fled Paris, she had been a world-renowned chef, and that's why the general recognized the dish she prepared because he had eaten it before in her restaurant. And one of the sisters says, we will all remember this evening when you've gone back to Paris. And Babette tells them she won't be going back to Paris. This is her home now. It would be too expensive to return. And they ask her about the money that she had won, all that money. And Babette drops the bombshell. She had spent all her lottery winnings on that feast for these bitter and resentful people. She'd spent all her lottery winnings on this feast. Everything she had to see this transformative grace come to life. In Psalm 23, God is our host who leads us to a great banquet. He provides for us in the here and now. And he will provide for us forever. A banquet where he is more than just a cook providing a meal to keep us going, but where he's an artist transforming us in the grace that he gives. And he gives us this grace at great cost to himself, and he's even glad to pay the bill. He doesn't begrudge us the price he had to pay to show us his love. There's so much more I could say about this passage. I could speak about the anointing our head with oil, and that's God washing and refreshing us from the mud and muck of our travel, how God binds our wounds how he nourishes and provides for us. But I want to leave us with a reflection on the last verse. The last verse. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That follow me, it's not just a follow me. The word there means goodness and love of God will chase me, will come after me, will find me. 
This is our confidence in life. As we grow, as we age, as we perhaps grow weaker and weaker even, that the goodness and love and mercy of God follows us, chases after us to lead us home, where God has made a place for us with him that nobody can take away. Friends, you are right now in your life being chased and followed by the goodness and mercy of God. And from one angle, that can feel a little bit terrifying, honestly. It can be a terrifying thing to our pet sins that we want to hold on to. It can be a terrifying thing to the selfishness that kind of, you know, colors our life <laughs> for, for worse. It can be a terrifying thing to the hard idolatries and all the things that hold us bound. But God chasing us in his goodness and his mercy and his love is a deeply glorious thing. He chased us in Christ. And the very fact that when we look at the life of Jesus and we see him in a stable, not in a palace. When we see him betrayed, when we see him on a cross, when we see him buried in a tomb, it means there is no dark place of your experience. There is no valley of the shadow of death that he will not march in directly into to find you. There are no links he will not go to. There are no ridiculous depths that he will not descend into to make sure that his goodness and his love find you. I started this morning talking about my fear of flying and how it's gotten worse with age, and I talked about you know, now I understand the fragility of life or whatever, but you know what I really think it is? I think I'm a worse flyer now because I can't control the plane. I think that's why I'm the worst flyer. Not that I can control the plane at 17. But I think my problem with flying is I can't control the plane. You know, statistically, I drive, I drive my car every day. Statistically, that's a much more dangerous thing. But I don't feel dangerous because I have my hand on the wheel. And when I turn left, the car turns left. But in a plane... I'm in a seat, and I have no say whatsoever. I am at the complete mercy of the pilot at the, at the controls. There's so much in our life that we have no control over whatsoever. But the encouragement of Psalm 23 is that we are not left alone in any of that. That our pilot, our shepherd, is one who has moved heaven and earth to find us in his mercy and love. We are in the care of our shepherd, who's with us whether we're in green pastures or beside quiet waters or even if we're walking through the darkest valley. And he will not fail to lead us home, where we will not only be sustained and have a table before us of nourishment among enemies, but where we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, the place where the power of sin and even its very presence has been destroyed where we will, as we're about to sing in just a moment, where we will feast in the house of Zion. That's one of the reasons why Scripture always points to this big metaphor that what God is leading us to is a feast where we feast in abundance and let His grace go right to our head, provided to us by Him, where we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. We will sing that He's done great things. We will feast and weep no more. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the glorious news that you are our shepherd. 
that through all the many different seasons of life and all the many different needs that we have as your flock, that you provide for us, that you lead us, that you guide us, that you are with us. I thank you, Lord, as well, that you are our host, that you are the one who provides all we need, whether it be in the here and now, as we are walking through this life, or whether it be that great uh, supper, <laughs> that great feast that awaits us at the completion of your redemption, where we will feast in safety, in joy, without fear. Imprint upon our hearts a confidence in you, not ourselves, a delight in you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.